Welcome to the Rich Tong Family Podcast. Well, hopefully this is going to be a great, another great episode. I'm so happy that it's uh, distributed everywhere. We'll talk about that. And we've got a bunch of things to talk about. I'm going to try to do 10 posts today instead of six, so it'll run a little long. Well, let's first cover the thing that's been topical in the news today, or really this whole week, which is what's going on with GameStop and Robinhood. Why did the trade stop? And Paul asked me these questions because it just seemed very mysterious. Well, I think the way to understand this is that it's pretty confusing. Now, fortunately, about one and a half million years ago, I did study to become a registered representative so that I, uh, when I was working at an investment bank, Morgan Stanley, that was sort of the de rigueur. So I know a little bit about it. And I think the short answer is that it's not necessarily some sort of dark plot, though it might be. But to understand it, you have to grok some detailed things about what really happens when you buy and sell stocks. The short of it is that when you buy a stock, you are not, you're actually kicking off a whole series of non-atomic transactions. And that any point the purchase can break and that someone owes somebody something. If you think like a computer person, then you can see that since it is non-atomic, that if it all doesn't happen simultaneously, someone can just break it and not honor the deal. And then the question is, who's left holding the bag? So let's just take a simple example. If I'm uh, 13 years old and I decide to buy a share of GameStop, GameStop GME stock for, say, $500, what really happens is that an order goes to Robinhood and it goes to a clearinghouse for settlement. Then someone else somewhere in some other brokerage account now it gives up their one share of GameStop to the clearinghouse, and then it clears because you get the stock. And this time that it takes is called the settlement time, which is normally two days. But uh, actually, the settlement time thing is kind of a misnomer. It really doesn't matter. But let's just say that um, one minute later, after you decide to spend that 500, 500 bucks, the shares of GameStop drops to $10. At this point, you've got a little bit of a conundrum as a 13-year-old. Because you haven't given out your $500 yet, but um, you're only going to get a stock worth $10. So you might just want to say, oh, just kidding. I don't really want that share of stock. In fact, I'd like to keep my $500 and give you that share back. Thank you. And anyway, I'm just going to close my Robinhood account and not worry about it. And there's no easy way to get that $500 back from me as a 13-year-old. Well, at this point, the person on the other side of the trade is thinking, well, I got my 500 bucks, and in fact, I was super happy to give up that share of stock for that was basically worthless. And now the brokerage account on the other side has got a problem, so does the settlement people, because uh, they've got the one share away, and they've got given $500 to that other guy, so who's going to cough up the 500 bucks? So this is what is called technically settlement risk. And that's the risk for the clearinghouse, because now there's sort of $500 missing. Uh, and since they have no idea who the heck that 13-year-old was or how to get the money back, they'll just say, hey, Robin Hood, since you have a million 13-year-olds and they've collectively bought a million shares of GameStop stock, stock well, that's really hard to say, then you owe me 1 million times, let's say 800 bucks, if it was because they want to cover, you owe me $800 million in cash. And so that's called the collateral. Now what happens is uh, you can sort of get the idea that the clearinghouse is always going to be estimating what the real risk is based on volatility. 
And every so often they'll say, hey, Robinhood, you need, you need to have more money in collateral. Now, in the real world, there's all kinds of math to figure this out, and it depends a lot on the volatili volatility. Uh, so, for instance, if the stock goes from 800 to, say, 799, there's a lot less risk that someone's going to break the trade. So the clearinghouse runs its models and predicts, predicts the risk of broken trades. And in this case, Robinhood woke up one day and discovered that the NSCC, their clearinghouse, sent them a letter saying they needed to come up with $3 billion more in cash if they wanted to keep trading. So yikes, you think um, that's a real problem. That's really what happened. So now the only choice is what to do. Now in normal times, in normal non-internet brokerage, run fast, break things, the first thing that happens is that there are typically limits on accounts. So if you're trading a volatile stock, Robinhood says, yeah, that's fine, but just make sure you have 800 bucks in cash with us. So as soon as you buy it, they'll lock that cash away and you can't close your account, you can't take it away. That $800 is what is called collateral. Now, in fact, there are a lot of other risky things that you can do. For instance, if you're doing options trading, um, you might need more collateral because suddenly something happens. And this gives rise to something called a margin call. And this is what happens when an option falls a lot in value and you may need to be paying a lot of money. The brokerage account will say, well, either you put the money in or I'm closing out the trade. Now, the real thing is that Robinhood is supposed to have their own systems to estimate what collateral they need so they don't get that horrible letter. And in this case, um, if they did that in advance, they put limits on those crazy 13-year-olds and then uh, prevent those trades from happening. But yes, this is the internet. So there, there you have it. If markets run smoothly, most of the time you don't have to worry about this. When a stock doubles in an hour, it sure makes it tempting to walk away from trades. But the fact is that if everyone does this, eventually anyone who loses money is going to not want the trade get, to get through. So for instance, it works the other way as well. Um, for, we didn't talk about the situation, but suppose I sell some shares for $800 and the next day the price goes to $8,000. Boy, it's sure tempting for me to say, hey, I really didn't mean to sell that share of stock. I just really want to keep it and break the trade that way. So eventually, no one's going to buy or sell anything because anytime you trade, someone is going to lose money. If the stock rises, the seller breaks the trade. If the stock falls, the buyer says, I don't want to buy so that's what this whole collateral and settlement thing was invented for in the first place, to make things look instantaneous. And to make sure that there's enough cash in the system so that if a buyer breaks a trade, they really have given their whole $800 in this example. And when a seller sells, they really have to give the shares away. So I know it's a little complicated, but um, uh, maybe it's not nefarious, maybe it is, but that's definitely what happened. Second topic, and this is uh, completely different, is I just spent an entire day of my life trying to figure out what's wrong with Python and Anaconda. For those of you who've never used uh, Python or any of these programming languages, one of the big problems is that you have all these conflicts. You install packages and they don't work right. So um, there are a couple solutions around this, and the, mostly these involve what are called virtual environments. I've used pipm as an environment, I've used pyenv, and I've also used anaconda. But I've had this terrible headache for months that my anaconda environment just never worked right. And it turns out that uh, there's a pretty subtle thing going on. Now, what's happening is that anytime you use a virtual environment, 
there's this thing called a user site. And these are packages that you've all installed yourself. And um, sometimes you want to use them and sometimes you don't. It turns out that with Anaconda, they always enable user sites. So they're always going to look at a particular directory in your home directory at .local slash live for these things. And it silently overrides any of the protection that you have in Anaconda. Normally what happens is when you install packaging in Anaconda, it's only available in that uh, particular environment. But it turns out Anaconda has an escape where anything installed in .local slash live is always available. Now that's uh, pretty confusing, but it's not normally a problem because the only time you do that is if in your bare environment you do a pip install dash dash user, which in the bare metal environment basically installs it there. But it turns out there's a vim package I have, and I think it may be black, I forget, that actually does a Python install for you. It actually installs its own version of Python, installs the .local, and so it, it maintains its own set of packages. And what was happening was, uh, every time I used Anaconda, I would pick up those libraries that were just for black. And this creates all kinds of strangeness. Now the way to figure this out is you just type uh, python space dash m site, and it tells you what's actually running and what modules are running. Now, the hack solution is pretty hacky. You just delete .local slash live, but it means that there are no local user packages that you can ever use. The real solution is to completely seal up Anaconda. And it turns out this is an open issue um, in that open source project as to how to do it. One recommendation is to use pyvnv.cfg because you can actually set it not to look for things. The problem is that it turns out for homebrew installation, so if you're using homebrew, that installation is in user local cask room. So basically it's way outside of Git, it's right outside of your local directory, and uh, it's pretty messy. So you don't really want to do that. But if you do, then you can just say include system site packages equals false and you're set. Um, the only reasonable fix is you've got to set this environment variable that's cleverly named Python no user site equals false. And you've always got to set that before you uh, run your Anaconda. So basically you've got to do a kind of complicated thing. You basically do a kind of activate and then you've got to make sure to export that enable user site equals false uh, to make sure it works correctly, which is pretty inconvenient. Um, but on the other hand, it's a super obscure bug, and it's nice to know that Anaconda, if you execute that um, no user site equals uh, true, that it's really completely sealed. The next thing is uh, this um, Anchor itself. And I just want to talk a little bit about Anchor, how much I love it, how I've used it. But I think the main thing to understand is that Anchor.fm, which is owned by Spotify, is a really nice way to distribute content and host content. And unlike things like Libsyn, it's completely free. So what happens is uh, this thing that I've created, I install on top of, um, or rather I create it with GarageBand, export an MP3 file, and then upload it to An Anchor. And that creates an RSS feed that then goes to all these sites. Now one of the nice things is it does automatic content distribution, which means it automatically logs on to the zillions of um, sites that host uh, directories for podcasts and it puts them in there. Now in my case, I found that when I did that, the Apple podcast thing would just never work. So it turns out um, what you have to do is when this happens, you have to go to podcast, uh, Apple podcast itself and you have to do a manual submission.
Uh, in my case, Anchor worked perfectly for Breaker, Google Pocket Casts, Rocket Public, uh, Radio Public, and Spotify, but it didn't work for Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or TuneIn. So just a hint, you have to do manual distribution then. And the way to do it is you have to go to some various magical sites. Um, just Google Apple Podcasts Connect, and this will help you set up a dedicated content site. And then you can tell Anchor that it's set up by going to their distribution site area. You, go, you then become a Stitcher content provider, so just go search for that. And then just search for TuneIn Podcast, which is a bit of a pain because uh, you've got to do a back and forth with email. And then you have to do the same thing with CastBox, where it actually publishes it, but then you have to claim ownership. So those three are pretty confusing. Uh, once you've done that, um, you will notice that YouTube isn't supported. And in fact, YouTube is not really a podcast site, but there is this thing called Tunes to Tube, to let you stick your MP3s up there very easily. Now, the reason you're doing this is that uh, once you have it hosted on Anchor, you can just do statistics, like who's playing it, who's reading it, and so forth. And in my case, woohoo, the last one, I had 10 total plays on that last episode. Of course, do remind doing testing, so I'm not sure it's that great. Well, let's do another item. Uh, in these days of COVID, I know it's not um, popular, but uh, I feel, kind of feel like this is an issue of who wants to be a millionaire or lifestyles with rich and famous. So I just wanted to start a little drool factory for fun things that are uh, really unaffordable for most humans. The first one is the Sony A1. Okay, the Sony Way is just kind of an incredible product. It costs a whopping $6,500, but it really is the one camera that will rule them all, according to Camera Labs and uh, DP Review and so forth. Now, last year, the fabulously expensive Canon R5 showed up, and it looked like it was going to be that camera. But it had a bunch of overheating problems and so forth. But now, uh, the Sony A1 has kind of um, arrived and solved a lot of those problems. Uh, to go through it, it's got a 50 megapixel sensor. Only really the Fuji GFX100S has more with 100 megapixels. And the fact is, anything over uh, 50 megapixels, you need a gigantic uh, uh, tripod and so forth because the jiggling is just too much. So 50 megapixels is nice. But the real thing is it's got what's called a stacked sensor. And what this means is uh, the sensor, which is this gigantic, gigantic thing, it's the size of a 35 millimeter um, frame, so over an inch wide, and that's all silicon. But behind it, they put the RAM directly back there, so it's super fast. In fact, you can pump out at 30 frames per second 50, 50 megapixel images. Just think about that. Now, it isn't compressed raw, but it doesn't black out, so you're really taking super high-resolution photos super fast. It also, uh, you know, I remember the days when uh, my first Canon had nine uh, sensors for focus. This thing has 759 sensors that are covered all over the image area. So for sports, for nature, you're pretty much sure you're going to get the image razor sharp. It's even got uh, eye detection in it so that it'll look for people or animals so that uh, it'll keep everything in great focus. And for stills, it's got this pixel shift mode, which I've used with my, um, with my own Sony that basically moves things by one pixel. So you can get a 199 pixel image with four photos, which is pretty amazing. 
Um, you know, in terms of limitations, uh, that you can have anything with a 6,000 product. Um, first of all, people don't like the back screen too much, and there is a limit. It, it only does a five times stabilization because it's using a sensor stabilization. Uh, not that I would really consider that a limit. And, and the viewfinder is unbelievably high resolution and runs at 240 frames per second, if you can believe it. I guess the um, other thing I forgot is it does 8K video, if you can believe it, at 30 frames per second. Now that does have some problems in that after about 20 or 30 minutes, it can overheat. But um, that's a pretty amazing thing if you think about it. So now you can get this A1. You can still get the um, Alpha A7R4, which is 60 megapixels, or the A7R3 at 40. But the speed and video really make this the overall champ. Now you're going to need a CF Express Type A card um, because you don't want the buffer to slow down, but you can still get 260 shots in 11 seconds. So it's really pretty amazing. And I guess the last thing um, that people comment on is you can get this S Cinetone uh, profile for the video, so you don't have to regrade it. So it looks really, really nice right out of the camera. Now, uh, what are some other things to really drool over? Well. This week, the Tesla S Plaid Plus shipped. Now, if you happen to have $139,000 lying around, you can order this thing, and it's pretty incredible. It'll be available this fall. Gets over 520 miles of range, which is unbelievable. And it goes faster than 1.99 seconds, 0 to 60 miles per hour. Now, that makes it the fastest production car ever made. And it's got a top speed of 200 miles per hour. Plus, it's got a 10 tera ops uh, gaming console built into it, so you can play games with the 8-inch screen. And uh, it's a lot of core. Now, personally, you know, we love the Model X um, and love to get that car, but it's not available on the Plaid Plus version. But uh, And they also say they're going to have seven seats at some point. They haven't really shipped that yet. But a seven-seat car that does 200 miles per hour, I just can't wait. Now, of course, the uh, Cybertruck is coming, hopefully in 2022, it seems like now. That'll also be 500 miles for $70,000, but it's not going to go 0 to 60 in 1.99 seconds. And uh, as Ryan McCaffrey said, that probably means the Tesla Roadster has got to invent time travel, because I don't know how much you get much faster than that. In fact, the speculation is the new Tesla Roadster will probably have uh, cold... Uh, cold uh, jet rockets. So basically it's going to have to blow jets and it'll be able to fly. So that's it for Drool Factor. Okay, back to NerdPack. So uh, Brian gave me a call and he said, listen, I've got this enormous spreadsheet. It's one and a half million rows. How do I even deal with it? Well, I've had the same problem. You know, uh, we started a little nonprofit called Restart Partners and it is really common for this kind of thing to happen. And let's just let me recommend a couple things. The first is uh, you could go to a proprietary business intelligence system. You know, I've tried Tableau, I've used Power BI, and they're both great, but you are locked into the way vendors work. The second thing is you can move to a SQL system. So store it all in a database, learn SQL Server, learn how that works, um, and then you use uh, Excel or Python to, to um, manage it. Now, this advantage is that you're really in two worlds. You're in the SQL world, and you've also got to figure out how to get into somewhere else. Another solution, though, if the database isn't super big, is to move to Python and a package called Pandas and a display uh, technology called Jupyter Notebooks. And this is the one that I've really used a lot. Now, you do have to become a programmer 
and you have to think about making that investment. But it really gives you a semi-decent user interface. Yes, it's not for lots of people. And with tools like Google Collab, um, it lets you share these things. And there are a lot of Google Ho Jupyter Notebook hosters out there. So um, basically what you do is uh, pretty simple. Uh, let's suppose you're using Collab, which is at collab.research.google.com. You basically save that Excel file is a CSV or an Excel inside Google Drive. And then uh, what you do is Collab gives you a free Jupyter environment. That means a virtual machine starts, it's got GPUs in it, and Jupyter is really an HTML interface on top of Python. And so to load the data is pretty simple. And to manipulate it is even simpler. What you do basically is you import it as um, you mount a drive, and then you basically use pandas, so you import pandas, and then you do a read CSV, and you can do all kinds of cool th things with it. And maybe, uh, it's a little hard to see, you have to go to my website to see it, but you can do things like um, look for values above two, and you can just get it. So it makes it really easy to write formulas. So check that out. Uh, next up, I just want to talk a little bit about this migration from Windows to the Mac. And uh, David and John reminded me, once again, that there are a lot of hard things that Windows users face. You know, it's a blazingly fast machine, but there are a couple of some complicated things. Uh, one example is this, is, is the use of, oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry about that, some uh, little glitch there. I'm not gonna re-edit the video because I really don't have time because I got another meeting in about 13 minutes. But Dave and John reminded me there are a lot of hard things and I just wanted to cover some of them. The first is when you do startup, this local accounts thing is super confusing. So when you get your shiny MacBook Air with Apple Silicon, the startup asks you to create a computer account. Now, this is pretty confusing given there are a sea of Apple accounts and one password logins and so forth. And the thing to understand that it's basically a legacy of the Unix world that Mac OS is based on. Every local computer has a set of local users and passwords, and these are called computer accounts, and they are not, I repeat, not related to your Apple account. So you actually have to create a new user and create a new local password just for that machine and use a new password and store it somewhere in 1Password. Now later on, you can actually connect your Apple ID to it, so most of the time you never need this local password, but you just have to know that it exists. Now, when we're talking about it, um, I should just cover the difference between 1Password and Apple passwords. Now, uh, the thing that's confusing is Apple really does make a super convenient password manager. And it's really nice, and it works great, uh, and it's what's called zero knowledge. That means that Apple has no idea what the passwords are, and they can't hack into it, and it's super nicely integrated to Touch ID and Face ID. The main problem, though, is that it's not going to work on Android or Windows. Uh, they do have a new, now a new add-in for Chrome on Windows, so you can use it there. But it, so I normally say that uh, if you're going to go all Apple and don't want complexity, you should just use it as your primary thing. So for most people with families or something else, um, there's a short-term pain but long-term gain thing, which is to use something like 1Password. Now, I don't get any money for one from one password for recommending it, but I'll tell you I've used a lot of different systems and it's pretty good. Uh, LastPass is the other one you'll think about, but the big advantage for one password is that it is zero knowledge. So there's no website, which is a disadvantage. One password can't crack into your system if they don't uh, in any circumstance. So what I normally do is I use one password for everything, and then whenever Apple asks, uh, "Do you want to save a password?" I just do that too. 
So it sort of acts like a mini backup. It doesn't mean it's confusing when you see both pop-ups, but it's nice to be able to um, have both those systems in case you need it. Okay, we're headed down the, uh, the last set, the last four things. And let's talk a little bit about the HomePod Mini. So the HomePod Mini is a great tool. It lets you do a lot of super cool things. And, um, but one thing that's not obvious is how to update it. You know, HomePod up, just had an update, and what's supposed to happen is that it should happen automatically. You're supposed to automatically get a brand new uh, update, but it's not clear when it happens. And in fact, there's a new update called 14.4, and I really wanted it uh, because it's got this thing called proximity featuring. Uh, so what's happening is the new uh, iPhone 11 and 12 have what's called the U1 chip. And this allows very close sensing to tell when things are near or far. And the HomePod Mini has it as well. So when you hold your phone close to a HomePod Mini, it starts to rattle and vibrate. And when you get closer and closer, it finally uh, allows you to control it. But um, when I uh, got my new update for the iPhone, the HomePods weren't updating. So what do you do? Well, it turns out yeah, you can force the update. And what you do is you update to the latest iOS version. And this is a little confusing, but you go to the Home app, click on the Home icon, and they have to scroll all the way down to say where it says Home Settings and click on Software Update. And then it's going to update all the HomePod minis in your home. Now, it's pretty deep, but it works. And yes, this UN proximity is super cool because you get this haptic feedback. Now, in truth, I found that it's sort of semi-reliable. Certain HomePods seem to do it, and then it stops. I have to reboot the HomePod, so it's not totally done yet. Now, while I was at it, I discovered this old HomePod feature uh, that really came with uh, I, uh, the iOS 11 and AirPlay 2. But since I never had HomePods, I never knew about it. But basically, iOS 11 is a really cool way to manage multiple HomePods, and it's been here for years. And what they do is uh, you click on the button on the right of each device, so what you do is you go to um, a play and you see this little strange little radio icon. And you can see there's buttons on the right of each device and it will allow you, allow you to gang together all the HomePod minis to play the same thing. And there's a left arrow too so you can see what's getting together. Now what's really confusing is how you change audio on a HomePod. And it looks to me like what you have to do is you have to start playing on your phone, then you gang the HomePods together, and then it plays the song that's on your phone. There doesn't seem to be any way to just gang them together without involving how you're playing on your phone. So the specific mechanism is you pick a song or a podcast that you want on your, uh, from your phone or your iPad. Then you pull down on the control center and you click on the arrow on the radio wave icon. And you click on the song to play. And then you look in the middle. And then you'll click and you'll see a list of AirPlay 2 devices. Then click on the checkboxes on the right and the devices will play it all. Now to stop playing, you basically unclick those boxes. And you can also see all the different things that are playing simultaneously on your, AirPod, on your AirPlay 2 devices, but it turns out you can't switch them around, which is pretty confusing. So there you go. Okay, last couple items. Um, hey, I just want to talk to all of those of you who are startup people, and all the time uh, there's a question about how to make a logo. And so I thought I'd give you some hints. Now, the first thing is... Um, the simplest thing is what's called logo type. And this basically means have a cool font and play with it. Now, the funnest thing I ever did um, on this front was about 20 years ago, we had this new venture fund called Ignition. 
And the question was how to show it was ignited. And the way we did it was we typed the word ignition and we simply made the eye red. And it's nice that it's a dot and it's at the front and it's still in use 20 years later. And I can still remember sitting there in front of PowerPoint wondering how to express this idea of ignition and being influenced by simple fonts that weren't fancy and making it read, make it seem logical when you read it. And the nice thing about it is, it is that it is super easy to express in generic HTML. You basically do a span, set the style to, into color, colon, red, and then end the span, and there you are. Um, that's a little complicated on a podcast, but you can uh, see at, rich to at tomfamily.com how to do it. The second thing is, um, uh, these days, Google Fonts has done a terrific job keep providing hundreds and hundreds of free fonts. And if you're a WordPress user, you can install a plugin called Easy Google Fonts, it lets you just pick those fonts right in your browser. So you can just integrate it in. If you're more sophisticated, you can actually uh, uh, do a script install and get all the fonts you need. Now what's the second way? If you're really fancy, you can use an emoji plus a logo type. And this trick is that Unicode has now arrived for everything. Every, almost everything is UTF-9, or sorry, UTF-8. And so you can you have almost an infinite number of Unicode emojis. For instance, for this, um, company I have called Iron Snow, it was sure nice to put a little snow icon right, right after the snow, obviously. And so I used a blue label, and then I just needed to find some snow icons. And it turns out that um, snow is actually a Unicode thing. In fact, it's a hex 2744. And again, um, that's really easy to add inside of any HTML thing, and it looks really nice. It sort of looks like a registered trademark or something different. The third way is to use a project like uh, the Noun Project. And they're basically, you know, all these open source people, you pay a little money and you get a PNG that lets you make a little icon. So if you want an icon for say, I don't know, uh, I did one for waves, right? You can just find a wave icon and just stick it in front. Now the complexity is you really want it to be an SVG, uh, so-called structured vector graphics, because if it's a PNG, it's a dot matrix thing, and uh, you can get these artifacts. So you really want it to be an SVG, but the problem is it's not easy to do. Now, if you really want more, um, you can spend as little as $5. There's a site called Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R, -R, that lets you get font treatments from people around the world and then provide some more money. Or you can hire someone for real and spend $500. But it doesn't have to be expensive to make a font. Okay. Almost done. Well, this is my continuing attempt to help uh, people install networks. And I have a good buddy who's installing a Ubiquity network, which, and I have a Ubiquity network and truly love it. And it reminded me of some FAQs. Now, first of all, if you've got a base installation, uh, you know, in his case, he had a Unified Dream Machine Pro, Unified Flex HD access point, and a doorbell. So he's got a nice controller, a nice access point, um, but it's a little confusing what to get next. And the reason is uh, Unify, like everyone else, is switching over to Wi-Fi 6. I think it's actually called 802.11ax. But each uh, of these Unify families has a huge number of different characteristics. But in general, if the word light appears, it means lower bandwidth but cheaper and good for homes. LR means long range, so bigger antennas. And finally, there's a huge number of high-density ones. But, um, you know, in his case, the hard part's wiring. And I think the key thing is you got to get CAT 6A, and the emphasis on 6A. And it's a DIYer's dream because if you get 6A, you can actually get 10 gigabit Ethernet, uh, which is very realistic. It's probably overkill for most homes, but what the heck, you're future-proofing. How often are you going to be 
laying wiring out. Now on to the frequently asked questions. Um, one of the big que uh, questions is these unifiers use power on Ethernet. That means you get power through the Ethernet jack. And it's unbelievably confusing because there's all these standards. But basically there's PoE, PoE plus, and PoE plus plus devices. And this refers to basically how much draw each device has. And the bigger the device, the higher the draw. In fact, you can actually run a laptop right now through power over your Ethernet. That's how much power you can draw. The other complexity is there's a maximum for the switch. So let's say with PoE, the maximum is, is uh, 15 watts per PoE port, but there's a maximum on the switch itself. So if you've got 100 ports, for instance, you can't load up 15 watts from every port. So a switch will typically have a maximum like 250 watts or even monstrous ones with 750 watts. But you really need a PoE calculator to calculate how much power you need. Um, now there's a huge chart that kind of explains how much you need. Um, and I'll add, there's a link to it on my site. But you can sort of see that the older, older uh, access points need less PoE and the bigger ones need more, which is PoE+. The second issue is, um, you know, just to summarize, that you net need, net need to look at the load. Now, there are, uh, there's, for instance, I'll give you an example. The Unified PoE 16 has 16 PoE plus ports, but the maximum wattage available is 60 watts. Whereas the PoE 16 Lite, the maximum is, six, is, is only 40 watts. So if you fill out all, out eight, eight, uh, all eight ports that are available for five watts, you're at the light limit. So most of the time, you know, I recommend spending that extra hundred bucks, whatever it is, to get a little headroom so you don't run out. Now the next question is, uh, which one of these many things should I use? There's, uh, for instance, Unify 6 Lite, there's HDAPs, there's Beacon HD Wi-Fi meshes. It's just such, so confusing. Well, um, for more normal homes without gigantic concrete or steel blocking signals, mesh is the easy way to handle it. And that's because you don't have to wire it. And um, the fact is, internet speeds in the US are super slow. So if you're backhauling at 40 megabits, it's just, or 400 megabits, it's just not a problem if your Wi Fi is running at 10. Because what's happening with mesh is that they're using some of the 5 gigahertz bandwidth to basically provide the backhaul to the access point. Now, the main trick here is that you want to have a star configuration because you want as few as hops as possible from way out there to your router. Because each hop basically reduces the amount of bandwidth by, by half. And that makes sense because you have to keep backhauling backwards and backwards. So um, MessHD is a great thing as long as you can get everything uh, working properly. Now, um, I'm sorry, just to make that clear. There are things like MessHD and so forth. And the main thing is um, they're super, these mesh things are super useful, uh, particularly if you want to go outside or you're a mall and you want it to be waterproof. Now, um, the older family, uh, Wi-Fi 5, is something called APHD, which is super high performance, super expensive. And the question is, should I move to the Wi-Fi 6 version? Now, theoretically, Wi-Fi 6 should be 50% faster than Wi-Fi 5, but in practice, it's about 20% more. It has better density, but that won't matter in most homes. And just as a side note, um, there's a big change coming in the next few years. There's something called Wi-Fi 6E for extended, I think. And this is going to open up a new spectrum in the 6 gigahertz range, which is going to really open up the amount of bandwidth. And at that point, it might make sense to upgrade your Ethernet to 2.5G or 5G from 1G. Um, and, uh, you know, that might make sense, you know, if Comcast ever gets beyond 1 gigabit or you're, you've got a server.
So now the main choices you have are how many access points you should you buy. Now in most homes, there's not that many devices, so I recommend a small number of big boomers. But if you've got a, um, a lot of devices, you might want to go with a smaller number of access points with lower power, and then you get more cell density, so you get more sharing the spectrum. Um, I myself uh, typically do that. So what are the specific offerings? Well, Wi-Fi 6 Lite at 99 bucks is nearly ideal for a home. It's 2x2 two two, uh, MIMO, which means it can handle two streams uh, up and down, and that gives you a maximum of about 750 megabits, which is pretty good um, between any two devices, and the antennas were okay. Now, if you've got a backyard or something, then the Unify 6 LR is great. It's 4x4, four four, so theoretically you can handle 3 gigabits per second, but remember, this is half duplex, so in the real world, it just about saturates a 1 gigabit uh, Ethernet. And you can see Wi-Fi 6E is going to be needed for more. Now, um, they don't have a Wi-Fi, a Unify 6 HD at high density, so you'd have to go back to the Unify APHD. Now, it's big and expensive. It costs $250. You need PoE Plus, also known as 802.11.at, but it's the star of the show because its antennas are great. Um, but remember that uh, there is the new Wi-Fi 6 coming along, so it may not make some sense. Uh, the last thing is uh, there's a Nano HD, which is a small, tiny version. You can think of it as uh, the sort of room size version. That's not yet available with Wi-Fi 6, but there's a Wi-Fi AP Nano HD, uh, which is smaller, um, and it's like its big brother and used for high-density situations. I don't normally recommend that, but it's something to know. Now, since ignition, ignition, um, sorry, electricians are expensive, um, you know, you've got a lot of options. The first is to try the mess mesh networking thing, and I really recommend that. If you've got an older home, one opportunity is to use cable. I've actually tried this. There's a standard called MOCA 2.5. Uh, I forget what MOCA stands for, but basically something about cable and that access. And you, you can easily get uh, 2.5 gigabits shared across all the adapters. What you basically do is you put a magic box next to each cable outlet, and then uh, that has Ethernet, and it connects over uh, MOCA. Each MOCA costs $50, but they work really well. You can also try power line networking. Now, I tried this, and it's theoretically a gigabit per second, literally through your electrical um, plugs. But if it goes through the electrical panel, it really is pretty slow. In fact, mine's is about 10 megabits. But if you've really got something where you've got two um, uh, plugs and you know they're just connected directly together, you can act that actually works pretty well. Um, not a common circumstance, if possible. And finally, if you really bite the bullet, as I said, CAT6A is great because a CAT6A cable can support 10 gigabit Ethernet up to 100 uh, feet away. And even uh, the older CAT5 and 6E can support uh, 2.5 and 5 gigabit um, Ethernet wired, if you get that right. But then you've got to change your switch out. And there is a big change happening as people move from gigabit switches to 2.5 and 5 gig switches, but those are pretty expensive too. Okay, I'll leave you with the last thing, which is the yucky job of cleaning your keyboard. Now, I hate to say this, but I've had this WASD Code V2 mechanical keyboard forever, and the left shift keys, or the right shift key in the period button started sticking. And I confess, I've actually never actually cleaned the thing, but fortunately, I do have a keyboard puller, which costs a few bucks from Amazon. There's a link in Ethan Family. And when I pulled it off, I saw an amazing amount of gunk and hair and all this other crap underneath it. So here's how you clean it. What you do is you take some rubbing alcohol, dilute it to 30% with water, I used to put in one cap of alcohol and two caps of water, and that just about does it. 
Then you unplug the keyboard, do that, get some Q-tips, and just start cleaning the gunk. Now, I actually have these things called keyboard dampers. These are little rubber donuts that reduce the travel and make my keyboard super responsive, so you might want to pull those off and key them. But the tricky part is there are some keyboards which have these stabilizer things, and once you pull it off, just don't lose those plastic things. Now, I found most of the gunk was in the last two rows, or the bottom, which doesn't make sense since everything drips to the bottom. And then you let it dry, and then you reassemble it. The main trick to reassembling is that uh, you got to remember how the keyboards are laid out, so I, you can look that up on the internet. I found a very nice thing, uh, just because you don't remember how the control, black, and the alt keys work. And the trickiest part is the stabilizer under the space bar. Turns out, and I linked to it in the thing, the YouTube video on it is really simple. You basically put the two little plastic things on, and you kind of shift left and shift right, and then stick it right on. Now, um, that works great, but it turns out that if you are too aggressive on the lube, you can lose the clickiness. So my uh, blue thing, I, I poured a lot of alcohol down a couple of them, and I did lose the clickiness. So just be aware of that. Don't put too much uh, alcohol down the actual cross. Now, the last thing that leads me to is, well, can I ever get the real click that I remember from the IBM PC? The original IBM PC Model M had this thing called, they had this amazing clack. And it turns out that IBM made them in Lexington. They spun that company out and they called it Lexmark. And then a, a company called Unicom bought it them out and they still make the so-called bucking spring keyboard. Really an original IBM PC keyboard. The new Model M is nice. It costs $104, doesn't have Bluetooth. And there's a Mac specific version called the Space Saver Model M. Um, but what's really cool is they're doing a 10 keyless design so you get an 87 key keyboard with that same clacking. That's something I'm waiting for. They say it'll happen in March, we'll see. And then I guess a sense of nostalgia here. The IBM Selectric keyboard is another one I love. They don't make these anymore, but the keyboard was super awesome. Uh, you can see in the show notes. And then um, I also use a Sun Microsystems Type 6 keyboard. And I just remember how super tight and clicky that thing was. Turns out you can still buy those on eBay if you want. So um, that's it for this week. Uh, send me feedback at Rich Tom or richardtongfamily.com, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Bye.